Well, good morning, everyone. Let's go ahead and get started. I think it's close to 9.30. Well, over the next uh, three weeks, what we're going to be doing is going through um, a list of questions that the congregation has submitted. Uh, I think we have nine questions, and so the goal was to try to get through three questions a week over the next three weeks. Um, before we get started, um, Brother Drew, would you open us in prayer? Well, today we're going to be trying to address these uh, three questions. Why can't you be a dispensationalist and be reformed? In 1 Corinthians 11.10, what is the best understanding of the word angelos, being that it can mean angel or messenger? Either way, why was the wife to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels? And then thirdly, many use 2 Peter 2.1 as a proof text against limited atonement. And what is the best exegetical understanding <coughs> of that passage. So let's jump into it. Now I wanted to give you a little bit of guidance and advice on how to approach difficult questions because we all, um, when we're doing our study of the Bible, reading the Bible, we come up with difficult questions sometimes that we don't know the answers to. And so how do we approach answering difficult questions? Well, here's a, here's a basic guideline. This is, this is basically the way that I approach difficult questions when I, when I get them. The first thing I do is I look at the immediate scriptural context around the text. So I look at the verses before and after. I look at word studies. I look at the words. What, what do the words mean? Um, I try to look at the words in their original language and see what, what uh, definitions of the words I can find. Um, you look at background studies. You look at the history, the historical context in which the text was written in. Um, basically, you use what's called the grammatical historical approach. And so that's the first place I go to when I look at a difficult question in Scripture. Not just a difficult question, but any, any text of Scripture. Then I move to what's called the analogy of Scripture. And that's basically, that's the concept of Scripture interprets Scripture. Um, the, God is His best interpreter. So God interprets His Word better than any, anyone else can interpret His Word, right? Because it's His Word. The whole Bible has one divine author, and the whole Bible is one story. And so... If God speaks about something in one place, and most, most of the time he's going to speak about it in other places as well. And if it's a difficult text, usually he speaks about it somewhere else more clearly. That will give us light on that more difficult text. And so we look for clear text in the canon to help us with those unclear or difficult texts. Then I move to what's called the analogy of faith. And that is where you review the whole counsel of God. And so we review the text placed within the canon as a whole. We look at redemptive history and how the text fits in with the biblical meta-narrative. In other words, we must have a clear grasp of what's called the faith that has been delivered once for all, and this becomes our guide in our, in our interpretation. So in other words, if, whatever, if you have come to a difficult text, if your interpretation of that text goes against the faith, then you have the wrong interpretation of that text. So the, the faith that's been delivered to the saints becomes 
our guide rails with when it comes to our interpretation of difficult text. And then lastly, we go to systematic and historical theology. And so the faith that has been delivered to us can be systematized under different doctrinal heads, which provides a guide for us as we seek to understand the particular doctrines a text is teaching. Further, we are to review what the church has believed throughout the centuries on these particular texts and doctrines. And so a good example of a systematic and and historical theology is our confession of faith. That this, this confession of faith is a great guide to you when it comes to understanding scripture and understanding difficult problems in text. Okay? Here's a quote from Spurgeon where he talks about the value and the use of our confession of faith. Spurgeon says, This little volume, our confession, is not used as an authoritative rule or code of faith. That's scriptures. That is our code of faith, our authoritative rule whereby you are to be fettered, but as an assistance to you in controversy, a confirmation in faith, and a means of edification in righteousness. Here the younger members, and I would say all the members of our church, will have a body of divinity, a body of truth, and small compass. Be not ashamed of your faith. Remember, it is the ancient gospel of martyrs, confessors, reformers, and saints. Above all, it is the truth of God. Let your lives adorn your faith. Let your example adorn your creed. Above all, live in Christ Jesus and walk in Him, giving credence to no teaching but that which is manifestly approved of Him and owned by the Holy Spirit. Cleave fast to the Word of God, which is here in our confession, mapped out for you. Okay? So with those things in mind, we went through a basic approach to understanding Scripture and interpreting Scripture. We've looked at the fact that our confession is a great aid and tool in that. And so let's go to these three questions that we're um, given. So question number one. Why can't you be a dispensationalist and be reformed? Well, to answer this question, we must first define what does reformed mean? Okay? So reformed. Well, from what? Well, reformed means from the errors and heresies of the Roman Catholic Church. Now, does anybody know what was the material and formal cause of the Protestant Reformation? In other words, why was it that the reformers reformed and protested against the Catholic Church. What was the material cause and what was the formal cause? Right. So the material material cause was the doctrine of salvation, the, the doctrine of justification by faith alone. The reformers taught that justification is by faith alone, and the Catholic Church was teaching that it was by faith plus other things. Okay? And the formal cause was the doctrine of Scripture alone. The reformers taught that our only, our only authoritative rule is the Word of God alone. And whereas the Catholic Church was saying that it was the Word of God and the church and the tradition of the church. And of course they brought in traditions that were contrary to the Word of God. Okay? Now, the Reformed, uh, the Protestant Reformation, there are several systems of doctrine that came forth from that that, um, that basically explain what it means to be a Reformed Christian. Now, I would pause right here. We have to, under, we have to define this word, word correctly because we, we identify ourselves as Reformed Baptists. Now, there are Presbyterians who will say we are not Reformed. They'll say that the word Reform, Reformed and Baptist is an oxymoron. You can't be Baptist and be Reformed. And I always argue against that because that makes, any, makes no sense. They're, they're basically putting all of the weight of being Reformed on their view of baptism. 
And being reformed is much broader and bigger than that. So what does it mean to be reformed? Well, one of the first things uh, it means to be reformed is you, you hold to what's called the five solas of the Protestant Reformation. Uh, sola Scriptura, that is the word of God alone is our authoritative rule. Sola gratia, that is we believe that salvation is by grace alone. Sola fide, we believe it is, by, uh, it is through faith alone. And solus Christus, we believe it is through Christ alone. So we, believe, we believe that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And the capstone of all Reformed theology is sola dea gloria. We believe that all is to be done to the glory of God alone. And that in salvation, God gets all the glory. Okay? Another uh, distinction of Reformed theology is the five points of Calvinism, uh, otherwise known as the doctrines of grace. Another distinction is we believe in the regulative principle of worship, which really just is an outflow of sola scriptura. We believe that God's word is authoritative, and so when we worship God, we must worship him according to what he has said in his word. He regulates his own worship in his word, and therefore that is the way that we approach worship. And then lastly, Reformed theology teaches that covenant theology is the biblical hermeneutic. Now, a person who is dispensational they can hold to the five solas of the Reformation. Uh, they can hold to the five points of Calvinism. And they can hold to the regular principle of worship. But a dispensationalist does not hold to covenant theology as their biblical hermeneutic. And so if this is a, one of the foundational tenets of Reformed theology, that is covenant theology, therefore you cannot be dispensational and be Reformed. Make sense? That would be the same thing as saying, I'm Reformed but I don't believe in the five solas of the Reformation makes no sense. Or, I'm reformed, but I don't believe in the five points of Calvinism. Can't happen. Okay? So, no, you cannot be dispensational and reformed. So let's get into this a little bit further. Now, that might be a little bit too small for you to read. I'm not sure. Some of you may be able to read it. We're older. Yeah. <laughs> but, I, but I'll read it out. So, uh, this slide is basically a, a, a very brief definition of what dispensational theology teaches. Dispensationalism teaches that there are two separate peoples of God, Israel and the church. These two distinct peoples have two distinct destinies. Israel's destiny is an earthly one focusing on the land and the temple. The church's focus is a spiritual one focusing on heaven. In dispensational theology it is taught that history, that is the story revealed to us in scripture, is to be divided up into different dispensations, where the word comes from, dispensationalism. It's divide the Bible and all of history into different dispensations. Each of these dispensations are periods of testing for God's people. And because the people fell as a result of unbelief and sin, it leads to the next dispensation. So God has these different dispensations. He gives tests to the people of God. If they fail, then they're moved to the next dispensation and then to the next dispensation. Okay? Therefore, the church, we're in the church dispensation now according to dispensational theology. The church was not really God's ultimate plan, but rather is a unique dispensation brought about by the failure of Israel. And so therefore the church is reduced down to a parenthesis in God's redemptive purposes for Israel. So God has this redemptive purpose for Israel. They failed, so God is taking a break in that plan, so to say. He's dealing with the church and he's going to go back to Israel. Okay, so you got... This plan of redemption for Israel is interrupted by the church, and then he's going to go back to this plan of redemption for Israel. 
Okay. Um, so therefore, um, the redemptive purpose of God moving forward is to redeem the nation of Israel and establish Israel as the dominant geopolitical force on this world for a thousand year period where Jesus will return and sit on David's throne in Jerusalem. Okay? So that's, what, that's why everything's moving towards Jesus is going to come back, go to Jerusalem, sit on, on David's throne in Jerusalem, and Israel will become the dominant political force ruling the world for a thousand years. And it takes a literal approach to the Old Testament, leaving very little room for seeing the prophecies given to Israel as being fulfilled in Christ. And so they think there's a lot of prophecies that were given to Israel that never were fulfilled, and God is going to go back and fulfill those prophecies. Okay? And therefore, dispensationalism prioritizes Israel and the Old Testament over the church and the New Testament with regard to the redemptive purposes of God. And so the ultimate plan of God is Israel, not the church. Okay? And so all that we are right now is a placeholder until God gets back to his plan of redeeming Israel and exalting them as a nation that is the most powerful and blessed nation in the world. So that's dispensationalism in a nutshell. Now there's a huge spectrum there. There's a lot of different views in dispensationalism. But that's the basic view is they distinguish the church and Israel as two distinct peoples of God. And God's ultimate plan is, his, is the nation of Israel, his people. All right, covenant theology, on the other hand, this is a brief definition of covenant theology. It teaches that God has one people, otherwise known as the elect. It teaches that the whole Bible was telling one unified story of how God is saving his covenant people. The whole story of redemption can be summarized by way of covenants. There is one eternal covenant called the covenant of redemption. In this covenant, God chooses a people in election, and he gives the elect to his son to be in time redeemed. In time or history, this covenant or plan of redemption is worked out under two primary covenants. The covenant of works and the covenant of grace. The covenant of works was made with Adam as a federal head. He, of course, fails, thereby bringing all of his posterity under the curse of sin and death. God, in his grace, because of his covenant redemption, then makes a covenant of grace of which Christ has made the federal head. This covenant of grace is first revealed in the garden in Genesis 3 and then progressively revealed by farther steps, that is, the historical covenants of the Old Testament, until the full discovery of the covenant of grace is completed in the New Covenant, in the New Testament, with the incarnation, sinless life, substitutionary death, burial, resurrection, and ascension of the Lord Jesus Christ. It is alone by the grace of this covenant, the covenant of grace, that any person who has ever been saved is saved. So that's covenant theology in a nutshell. We believe that the Bible is one unified story teaching that God has a people that he has chosen before the foundation of the earth. He's given those same people to his son. He sent his son to redeem those people in time, and his son came and did that. And now the Spirit is applying that finished work of Christ to his people, and God will save all of his people called the church. And that includes both Old Testament saints and New Testament saints. Okay? Now, a lot of dispensationalists will accuse covenant theologians of what they call replacement theology. They will say that we are saying that God had a, had a covenant people of Israel and he's replaced that people with the church. That's not what covenant theology teaches. What covenant theology teaches is that God has grafted the Gentiles in to the, the covenant people of God. Okay? 
And so the only replacement that happened was not replacing Israel with the church, but he replaced the old covenant with the new covenant. That's the replacement that took place. But God has always had one people, his elect, that he has given to his son, Jesus Christ. Okay? So covenant theology in the confession. This view that the Bible only conceives of one people of God called the church is the consistent view of the Protestant Reformation, the 17th century Reformed Confessions, and the Puritans. It was not until the mid-1800s that the dispensational view distinguishing the nation of Israel as a separate people of God from the church began to be widely taught. And if you do a cursory reading of our confession of faith, it leads to the conclusion that Reformed theology is clearly distinct from dispensational theology. We don't have time to do it. I wasn't going to do it, but read through this confession and it's all going to be talking about God's elect people or the church. In fact, it even mentions in one place the Jewish church, okay, under the old covenant. Okay, God has one people that he has chosen and he's given that one people to his son and his son is the one covenant head over the one people of God and he has saved that one people and that one people of God will be in, in heaven forever with God, dwelling with him in perfect holiness. Okay? All right, let's move to question number two. I don't have a watch. What time is it? Let me make sure. 9.48. 9.48, all right. Any questions, comments about the question about dispensationalism and Reformed theology? Well, if you don't mind backing up a couple, uh, I think you covered some of the ground that was in my Dealing with Israel and the church. Okay. We discussed this weeks ago about basically, like you're saying, we got grafted. The Gentiles are grafted in. There's never, and what, what I'm hearing is, is that it's still Israel. Mm -hmm. Those that were disobedient of Israel are, for lack of a better statement, left behind. And those that were originally with Israel continue on. And those that believe in Christ are grafted in along with the rest of Israel. Yeah. We're believing Jews. In Romans it talks about not everyone who was of Israel was of Israel. Right. And so the, the Israel of God, well if you look at like uh, prophecies in Joel for example, uh, it really uh, says that the Israel of God is really Christ. Christ is the Israel of God. Right. And all those who are united to Christ by faith are therefore in Christ, and therefore they, we become the Israel of God. And so all those who are believers in Christ are, Bible Galatians say that we are children of Abraham, those who believe. So it's not the children of the flesh of Abraham that are children of Abraham, right. but those who are children of faith, children of the promise. Right. Okay. So now the, the other thing that was going through my mind when we were talking about it, Talking about where is it, where is it, where is it? Um, with dispensationalism, talking about God had a plan for Israel, the plan failed, so he shot from the hip and brought in the Gentiles. That's kind of how that's kind of sounding. Okay, well, I'm going to make up a new plan as I'm going along. That means that God is not God because He made a mistake, and, and that's my that's my interpretation of what I'm. Right, I understand. God doesn't make mistakes. And, so and a dispensationalist wouldn't. A dispensationalist would say that um, they, they're not open theists. They wouldn't say that God 
didn't plan this, you know, before the foundation of the earth. At least most of them wouldn't. I'm sure there might be some that would. But um, what he's saying is his main plan, his main goal is Israel, not the church. Okay, so the church, although that's part of the plan of God, that's not his, that's not his main plan. It's a parenthesis in his main plan. Right, but it so. kind of excludes the elect aspect to a degree. Um, maybe not fully, but to a degree. Uh, but the Bible continually talks about the elect. Well, it, the, the dispensations those, would... Those, those are not necessarily those from the original Israel. Those that are also Gentiles and not yeah. elected in the city. We say the, the elect are all believers, Jew and Gentile. And they would basically break it up into two different elect groups. Mm-hmm. You have the Israel and the church. Rather than one unified, one unifying group. Yes. Okay. Question? Or statement? Uh, I was with some ladies the other day and we were kind of talking about religion. And I'm always afraid when that happens because... Don't be scared. Everybody believes it's something different. Anyway, uh, this one lady said that her, her pastor said, my pastor, this, this is what she said, my pastor said the other day that God was going to give Israel another chance uh, later. And, uh, and I, didn't, I didn't know what to say to her because I thought it wasn't what? where I could, it wasn't where I could just bring up the whole thing. Yeah, that's, that's dispensationalism. Yes. That way, that's exactly what that is. Another chance. They have a chance. If they believe in Christ, they'll be saved. That's the chance that they have. All right, question number two. Good, brother. Just, just a quick comment on that. If, if you follow dispensationalism logically, I would assume that you would want to convert to Judaism. Yeah. I mean, would be a bad idea. God's focus is going to be on on the Jews. I mean, if I believe that, I would definitely want to convert to Judaism. Hmm. All right, let's move to question number two. <clears throat> And this is one of those difficult, kind of tricky, hard to, hard to process type questions. So take, take your Bible and go to 1 Corinthians 11, verse 10. First Corinthians 11, verse 10, it says... That is why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. So a wife is to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. So the question is, in 1 Corinthians 11.10, what is the best understanding of the word angelos in the Greek, being that it can mean angel or messenger? Of course, our translation translates it angel. Either way, well, it depends on what translation you have. I don't, I don't know of any translations that translate it messenger. Um, off the top of my head. I think most translations will translate that word as angel. Either way, why was the wife to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels? Well, difficult question. Does our confession have an answer to that question? Can you look up in our confession, what does 1 Corinthians 11.10 mean? No, you can't do that in our confession. But our confession does give us some guidelines to get us started on a question like this. So if you notice in chapter 1, you've got your Trinity hymnals in the back, but um, chapter 1 of our confession, paragraphs 8 and 9, in paragraph 8 it says that, that in all matters of controversy regarding uh, religion, the church is finally to appeal to the original languages. The Bible written uh, Old Testament in Hebrew, New Testament in Greek. 
Okay, so if there's, a, if there's an issue concerning um, a, a, a verse, the final authority there should be the original languages. <clears throat> okay? So we should consult the original languages, the Hebrew and the Greek. Also, paragraph 9 of this cha chapter says that the infallible rule of interpretation of Scripture is the Scripture itself. And therefore, when there is a question about the true and full sense of any Scripture, it must be searched by, enough, by other places that speak more clearly. Okay, so if we're dealing with a verse that we don't understand, we can look in other places in Scripture to get clarity on what that verse is trying to teach. Okay? Okay, also, the, the question at hand here is dealing with the relationship between men and women, uh, roles of women. If you look in chapter 4 of our confession, that deals with uh, creation, and it talks about how men and women are both created in the image of God. If you look in chapter 6, uh, paragraph 1 of our um, confession, it speaks about how uh, Satan um, seduced Eve. Um, so it was a woman who was deceived. And so we, got, we start to get some, some confessional help as we begin to dive into this question of 1 Corinthians 11.10. So, following the, the pattern that I laid out earlier, what is the immediate scriptural context? Well, in order to understand verse 10, we need to read the verses before and after, right? Now, we don't have the time to do that this morning, but um, the context here is dealing with the corporate or public worship of the church. Okay? In verses 2 through 16 of chapter 11, he commends the Corinthians for following apostolic tradition, and he also provides teaching concerning the distinctive roles of men and women in the context of the gathering of the church for worship. That's the basic context. In verses 17 through 34 of this chapter, Paul does not commend the Corinthians for the way in which they have been observing the Lord's Supper, and he, of course, delivers apostolic teaching on that ordinance. Okay, dealing with the original languages, we're still in the grammatical historical process here of the interpretation. The word translated in English as angels is the Greek word angelos. Uh, the, meaning, the word is sometimes translated in English as angels and sometimes as messengers. And so the fact that this word can be translated in different ways certainly has bearing on the interpretive process. Whether the word angels or messengers is the best translation of the Greek word must be seriously dealt with to understand what the scriptural passage is teaching. Okay? Make sense? Moving forward. Also part of the grammatical historical approach to interpretation, you deal with the historical context in which the, the, um, the text was written. Now, I'm going to give a, a word of advice and caution about historical context and, uh, and background studies. Okay? So historical context, also known as background studies, can be very useful in the interpretive process. However, we must understand the limitations of background studies. Background sources, and what I'm saying here is like we go and look at archaeology or uh, some historical book that talks about the first century, okay? Or sometime in the Old Testament, if we're, if we're studying the Old Testament. These are what called, are called background sources. So background sources are not infallible sources. They're not scripture. Background sources are not exhaustive sources. Background sources are not always Christian sources. And background sources are not self-interpreting sources. Only the scripture is a self-interpreting source. Okay. The conclusion. Although background studies can be helpful, they have inherent limitations and therefore do not carry the same weight as intercanonical studies. That is the analogy of scripture and the analogy of faith. Now, background studies concerning this particular issue in 1 Corinthians 11.10, we know that the cultural custom of that day and not just um, for um, Jewish women or Christian women, but for Roman women in general, uh, the custom of that day was for men to have their heads uncovered, 
and married women to have their heads covered. In many ways, a head covering for a married woman was analogous to a wedding ring today. A head covering symbolized you were married. You were under uh, the head, your husband's headship. And regardless of whether you were religious or not, women were expected to wear a head covering in public because that was the appropriate thing to do. This is what a virtuous, virtuous woman did. Okay? So it was a symbol that the woman was married and had a husband as her head. It was expected in this time culturally, not just in Jewish or Christian culture, that a virtuous wife would wear a head covering. Okay? So that's the context here. So are you saying that all women, regardless of if they were married or not, still had to have a head covering on when they went in public? Is that what you said? No, I was saying that, um, I did some reading on that. Uh, I think uh, in that culture, primarily it was uh, married women would have to have a head covering um, in, in Roman culture. <coughs> okay. Now, this is Roman culture. This is not 21st century American culture. Okay, we, There's a distinction here. All right, so Scripture interprets Scripture. The analogy of Scripture. The immediate flow of thought for this text is verses 8 through 10. For man was not made from woman, but woman for man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. That is why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head, because of the angels. And so, really, the context of that question, that is why... It's not because of the angels. I mean, it's included there, but it's, 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 the focus there is more on what's happening in verses 8 and 9. For the man was not made from woman, but woman for man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. That is why a woman ought to have a symbol of authority on her head. So the focus here is not the phrase because of the angels. That's not the focus. Okay. Other scriptures that shed light on this passage are Genesis chapter 1 and 2 where it talks about the creation of man and woman, male and female. Of course, in chapter 2, we realize, we see that Eve was deceived by Satan. Okay? Then God gives his own commentary on that in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 12 through 14, where he's teaching why um, women are not to uh, have authority in the church. Well, he, he, he grounds that, that teaching that women should not have authority in the church in the fact that Eve was deceived by Satan. That's where he grounds at. Okay? Interpreting scripture with the church, uh, that is historical theology. The phrase, because of the angels, has been interpreted in many different ways by various Bible interpreters. And so I consulted the following to see what their thoughts were on this phrase. I looked at the ESV Study Bible, the Reformation Study Bible, I looked at John Calvin's commentary, Matthew Henry's commentary, and the New Testament commentary by Simon Kistemacher. And what I found was they had some similarities in their interpretations and they had some differences in their interpretations. There's a wide range of views on what this particular phrase meant. Now, if you do your historical theology studies on a particular question and you see a wide range of different views on a particular text or question, then you probably can deduce from that that this is a very difficult text. Okay? You can also probably deduce from that that this probably is not a, a situation or a text that is of critical importance regarding matters of salvation. Does it make sense? Because if it's something that's clear for salvation, when you go and do your historical theology studies, you're going to see consensus within the tradition of the church. Does it make sense? Okay. Conclusion. What word is the best in this context? Well, in a lot of the immediate scriptural context, word study the original language, historical context, analogy of scripture, 
in historical theology, my conclusion is that the word angels is most likely referring to angelic beings and not human messengers, whether that be ecclesiastical or magisterial messengers. Again, there are differences of opinion there, but most of the ones I looked at and and also um, in context of these other aspects of interpretation, I think that the angels mentioned here are speaking of actual angels, heavenly beings. Secondly, what what does the phrase mean because of the angels? Well, I think there are two closely related interpretations that I tend to agree with the most, and one interpretation that I think is a reasonable possibility if the word ought to be understood as a human messenger and not a um, heavenly angel. So those three interpretations. One, angels here are referring to holy angels present um, when the church gathers for worship. Hebrews 12.22 speaks of our new covenant worship in the following way. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering. Because we are worshiping in the presence of God's holy angels, and more importantly in the presence of the living God himself, it is only proper that men and women conduct themselves in accordance to the roles that God has assigned. God has assigned roles to men and women, and it is appropriate for men and women to um, obey the roles that God has assigned in the context of corporate worship. It is not appropriate for a man to not, um, to not exercise leadership. It's inappropriate. For, it's, not, it's not masculine for a man. It's not pleasing to God. It's, it's also inappropriate for a woman to try to assume leadership in the context of the church. Therefore, what Paul is teaching here is that is not appropriate in the worship of God. Because we are gathering before holy angels, and more importantly, because we are gathering before the holy God himself. Another interpretation. Angels here are referring to evil angels. In light of the immediate context and the canonical data concerning the deception of the woman in Genesis 2, and God's later interpretation and commentary on this in 1 Timothy 2, 12 and 14, a possible interpretation of 1 Corinthians 11, 10 is that because the woman was deceived by the angel Satan, that it is appropriate for wives to be submissive to the spiritual leadership headship of their husbands in the context of corporate worship. Perhaps the the right view of this is that this is a combination of both of these things. Now a third uh, possible interpretation, if the word angels is best translated as messengers, that is human messengers, it doesn't change the requirement for propriety in the church with regard to the roles of men and women. If messengers from other churches or from the government are present in the worship service, they should find the men and women behaving appropriately according to divinely ordained standards of masculinity and femininity. Okay? Okay? So really, in a lot of ways, it doesn't really matter what your interpretation of that is. What matters is that you understand that in the church that men and women have certain roles and that God expects men and women to behave like men and women in the context of worship because that's only appropriate. And if others view our worship, they ought to be seeing that. Okay? Questions? Yes, ma'am? In in Corinthians there, I understand what you said and I totally agree with everything. Not that my opinion matters, but... Um, it's confusing to me a little bit how in the Corinthians, because it talks about the woman being under the man, or the man having authority over the woman. Then it says, now this is the New King, I mean, the New King James Version. I have here. It says, um, for this reason, the woman ought to have a symbol of authority on her head. It almost sounds like that that. Covering is authority for her. 
The, the covering was symbolizing the fact that she was married, and therefore she had a she had a head, which was her husband. So the symbol of authority is her husband's authority over her. The symbol is the head covering. The authority is her husband's authority over her. Okay. Okay. Uh, question number three. What, what time we got? Because I may not be able to. Ten oh seven. Ten oh seven. I don't know if we're gonna be able to do this one. But this is the one I'm. I, this is. Well, I'll give you the quick answer. The answer here is no. <laughs> or at least to the first part of the question. Um, in the best exegetical understanding of this passage, I don't have time to lay that out for you today. So, we'll pick it up next week. Brother Damien, you'll close us in prayer?